0: Welcome to my podcast, In The Know, my series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of Notel. Welcome to In The Know, where I interview interesting people that I bump into as I travel the world. I'm Amal Sarva, founder of Notel, a flexible office business that makes agile HQs for companies all around the world. And today, I'm in Austin. I've been here all week for South by Southwest, and I got some really interesting people. So maybe we will start with some level of introduction. Um, would you like to start there, and yeah. everyone can say a little bit, and then Ooh, this is, we'll steer? Yeah, the hype man needs to dial it down very a little
1: exciting. bit. Thank you. Okay, so I am Claire Vaux. <coughs> I'm the SVP of Product at Optimizely, are the world's leading experimentation platform, headquartered in San Francisco. We have offices in San Francisco, New York. Amsterdam, London, Frankfurt, or Munich, um, and uh, Austin. Frankfurt or Munich? You know, I haven't been. They're to kind the of German the same. It's like a fast guy. train. I, I think there's, I think there's people in Frankfurt and in Munich, um, and in Austin. And I joined Optimizely two years ago through the acquisition of a company I was CEO and co-founder of called Experiment Engine that was actually. Um, built and uh, grown here in Austin Texas I am one of those unique people that moved from Austin to San Francisco not in the opposite direction so they do I try to balance out things you know I used to complain about Californians coming here so I had to do my uh, do my part and go the opposite direction but the rest of my team stayed here and then optimizely is doing aggressive hiring in Austin across all of our uh, functions as a corporate strategy and actually using flexible workspaces as the way oh, that you we are. do that. Like yeah. maybe
0: no tells. we should have a chat about Something it. Something like that. Funny that we meet here. One
1: of those. Um, so I'm here, I'm happy to speak personally about my experience moving into a very expensive uh, talent market and also why I believe markets like Austin are really the future for building technology companies.
0: How exciting! So you've just moved to San Francisco, and you're going to talk about how great Austin is. Yeah. And represent your homeland. Okay, Uh, Amy, would you like to say hi?
2: Good morning. I'm Amy Nelson. I'm the CEO of Venture for America, and Venture for America is a fellowship program for recent college graduates who want to become entrepreneurs. And the way our program works is folks will apply to us typically as seniors in college. We had well over 2,500 applications this year for what will ultimately be about 200 fellowships we then place those fellows in cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Cleveland, my hometown of St. Louis. And the idea is to get these highly talented, highly energetic folks moving to cities that are struggling to attract and retain the talent that they need but have these emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems that are growing that they can plug into. And then when you move to that place as a highly ambitious college grad, you're going to get exposed to leadership and to decision making and to how startups are really built in a way that you might not in an overcrowded market like San Francisco. So we really are advocates for the rest of the country uh, and excited to bring more talent and capital to those places.
0: You're helping these cities. I mean, I quite like and admire your organization. Thank and I, you. doesn't everybody who's CEO of Venture for America then run for president of the United States? We're
2: at hundred percent rate so far. However, um, I you guys have heard of this Andrew Yang fellow? Anytime soon. Right. Your
3: <laughs> intentions are undeclared. Okay. Well, that's good because that would make 138 candidates for president. <laughs> um, so we can scratch you. Up. But you
0: should run. You should run. You absolutely
3: yeah. should. I'll vote for you. Uh, he says on the record, to no one in particular. Um, I'm Michael McGarry. I'm the head of public policy for Upwork. Upwork is the largest global freelancing website. Um, What that generally means is that I go all around the world in in some of the 180 countries where we have um, uh, users of our site and ensure that freelance businesses can grow and help other businesses scale and grow uh, from wherever to wherever and create um, economic opportunities so people can have better lives. Where but do you I'm, live, Mike? But I'm here to answer a very simple question, which is uh, the the title of this panel. And the answer is yes, and it doesn't matter. Uh, hmm. I'm a uh, my name is Mike, and I'm a San Francisco escapee. Uh, I lived in the inner Bay area for 10 years and then I got successful. Um, By that I mean I married very well and had two beautiful children or was, you know, tangentially involved in having two beautiful children Um, and realized that living and raising kids in San Francisco is impossible and shouldn't be done by anyone who's not suited for it. And I certainly wasn't. Uh, I live in Fresno, California. On purpose and not. Can I get anymore. a
0: shout out for Fresno, California? Fres- yes, all the people. Fresno people in Let's the room.
3: Let's go. Go Fresno. Go Grizzlies. Um, yes. My God. Go all Bulldog. of you are here. We're all. This is it. We're the entire city. Um, it's diverse. Uh, so uh, my point is, it's okay. San Francisco has priced itself out of the startup market. Before I was at Upwork, I worked and helped start a group called Engine which does advocacy for small to medium sized high growth startups all across the country. And the reason we had to do it all across the country is because so many of the programs like VFA and others were moving activity away from San Francisco and creating new capitalized opportunities to do that because it's impossible not just to raise children but to raise companies in in that area. But that's okay because there's a lot of talent that's not in
0: San Francisco. And doesn't particularly want to be. So let's do a little house hunting advice. Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. because Claire's on the
0: hunt at the moment. So you know, Mike,
3: (laughs) I feel like
1: I'm being hunted. You're being hunted by houses.
0: This actually, Claire. This is just an intervention. Um, (laughs) But what do we mean? (laughs) So we should move back to Austin. If it's priced out of the startup market, San Francisco in particular, and we'll generalize later. I guess what you mean is people who work at startups can't afford to live there, and startups can't afford to work there. I mean, it's the, sort of weird, right? It's like the the restaurant no one goes to anymore because it's too crowded.
3: Yeah, it's a little
0: bit like that. I mean, it, it, truthfully, like if you're not already there, if you're not
3: already you know working out of a motel and or you know expanding your business that. within Let's a motel, thank you. Um, it's very hard to just get into the real estate market whether you're running a company or whether you're trying to buy a house. Again, I'm very sorry. This really is not directed <laughs>
0: Well, your yet. company has an office in. We SF, do. We right? have an office in San Francisco. And I people, go to that when I'm forced to. Some people live there.
4: I some do people, live there.
3: Some
0: people live there, but most people now are like uh, on the outside looking in. You know? So it's expensive to live near the yeah. core or where it's cheaper, the commune is really bad. Yeah. That's the entrepreneur, well, of... entrepreneur,
2: it's also a matter of what are you willing to give up, right? Yeah. If you want to live in a really expensive market and you want to hire talent in a really expensive market, it means you either need to already have a lot of capital yourself or raise a much more significant amount of capital in order to achieve that early stage success, which probably also means giving up a lot more of your business very early on than you might want to. And then that capital is gonna force you to make a certain set of decisions because generally speaking, they want a certain set of outcomes that might not be the ideal path forward for your specific business. And so I think alongside these rising rents, you're seeing the, Outsize influence of a very small number of venture capital firms. and We were quite admiring, weren't,
0: weren't we quite admiring our favorite venture capitalists' comment that uh, two-thirds of every dollar Peter Thiel invests gets paid to some landlord somewhere. So it's either the office of the company or the, the homes of the
1: people.
2: And that is one thing I agree with Peter
1: Thiel on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can and say, I mean, us. I did a startup not in Silicon Valley, so I founded my startup in Austin, Texas. I raised... Um, venture capital. I did most of the, actually all of the raise outside. You know, California Investments, our lead investor was actually out of um, Boston, Founder Collective. Very, very, very great fund. Um, oh, amazing great,
0: firm. And they, invest a, the firm, and they yeah. invest a lot out of the core of And they
1: invest a lot out of the core cities. Uh, they also told us to move to San Francisco. But, um, but I was able to raise in Austin and I, was, I ran a very capital efficient business. Now that had to do with the geographic location, absolutely the price for talent and the people that we could get at the salaries we could get them, the rent, all of that stuff was favorable. I also think being a female founder helped us be a little bit more capital efficient. Uh, that is a well studied phenomenon. But I was able to run the company for two and a half years on a seed round. Um, And that is something you cannot do in San Francisco. Now, that being said, I sold my company to a company that is headquartered in San Francisco. I moved myself to San Francisco. I didn't have the rest of the team move. So the rest of the team stayed here and has now rooted what is our biggest expansion in terms of office for our main company. So uh, I moved and then said, you know what, where we should really hire is Austin, Texas. And that was because the talent market is extremely competitive. You know what? It's not fair to say people can't afford to live there. There are lots of people that live in San Francisco. They just live a very different kind of life. They don't live the, you know, three bed, two bath, backyard, uh, great public schools that you can walk to life. They just don't. I push my two year old up a damn hill. It's every a hilly day city. That's not a Where someone <laughs> stabbed outside the front door, like. This is my life, but that's what I choose. But what that means is that talent is extremely expensive. Okay,
0: so this is a powerful sales pitch, though, for the low-cost living here in Austin and all you're able to accomplish. But But what I'm curious about is... Why is Optimizely headquartered there? And what have you noticed are the differences? What, what did you lose? So the, uh, the advice, the sort of standard playbook advice that any sensible venture capital firm always does give so they don't look dumb. They just say, move to San Francisco, I guess. But there must be a reason. And perhaps you have some, some so, sense of why they might Yeah, Optimizely
1: that. is nine years old. It was a Y Combinator um, company. It's funded by Andreessen, Benchmark, and Index are all on our boards. They're all in San Francisco. So it was just founded in san francisco by native bay area folks and run out of y combinator almost 10 years ago so they locked into san francisco a long time ago let me ask
0: amy about this a little bit because i I don't think it's so straightforward as the accident of a handful of people having been in san francisco sure this this accident happens and isn't that what you seek to do at adventure for america You try to make that accident happen in other places absolutely (laughs) and you
2: know like studies of collisions are, are well documented and that, that was sort of the premise for a lot of folks like Tony Shea investing in the downtown project in Las Vegas or Dan Gilbert investing in the downtown corridor of Detroit is to create density where density has not been because people naturally running into each other are going to be, you know, more likely to interact, talk shop, do something, perhaps create something together. But I think what's more interesting now, given that, like, yes, San Francisco is a monolith, but it's a fairly small peninsula. You can only fit so many humans there, especially if you can't build up, mm-hmm. are these notions of clusters, right? And so Detroit was the motor city. You have significant investments in mobility in that place. You have, you know, Cleveland with the Cleveland Clinic has this amazing health tech corridor of people who are incredibly qualified in that direction, spending time with one another. And so each city that we work in, you try to sort of identify whatever the core asset is. Maybe it's p in Cincinnati. So they do CPG really well, and then invest deeply in whatever it is that you're good at and get a density of humans that have a specific kind of
0: talent. When you show up in a, a Cleveland, for example, I think it, it, it is very sensible to identify some of the deep areas of knowledge and expertise, as, as you mentioned. But then what are you trying to complement when you show up in a place that isn't like a startup hub already? There must be stuff you're like hunting for or trying to teach or whatever.
2: So I mean, we're looking for young people at the end of the day who have a number of factors. We're looking for folks who are adaptively excellent, they can get in. Into- into a new environment and learn really quickly. Who are resilient? They'll, as you know, sort of get up, dust themselves off because entrepreneurs here know way more than they hear yes. But then we're looking at a place we want it to be a place that has experienced brain drain. So there are only two American cities that actually lost population in the last census: Detroit and Baltimore. Everywhere else is growing. But we're looking at these places that are, have been hollowed out through just sort of the machinations of the last couple of decades. Um, who need that early stage talent coming in? And, but also have this early density of startups, investors, and maybe accelerators, places to work, etc.
0: So Mike, when you left... Oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask Mike a question. Oh, go for yeah. it. Yeah, so I think we're talking really in this like geographic framework, yeah. and I think Mike might have an interesting perspective that you could just detract yourself from the constraints of time and space right. and work anywhere. So I'm curious... Does this, you know, where geographically, where companies are headquarters, does that even resonate with you?
3: Well, it, it does. And, you know, we've we've done a lot of writing and thinking, especially after the HQ2 debacle that Amazon just went through in Queens um, around, you know, how do you create more opportunities and is this, is this the right approach? No, it's not kind of stuff. Now, there's two parts to this. One is the technology has created, you know, a, a sort of virtual commons that allows you to have um, access to talent in more places more seamlessly than ever before which is good the good in that is not just about efficiency of your capital spend as a founder it's also about bringing diversity of opinion and thought and experience into how you're building your product so having you know more faces in more places that you can gather around you know whether it's you know on a, in a zoom room or on a slack channel or whatever it is um, makes stronger products in a lot of ways and certainly makes, it, it gets you out of, and I think this was a, a big part of what VFA has done too, and, and it, it gets you out of like, well, we're just creating another photo sharing app. We're just doing something else that's you know, derivative because you're facing different sets of challenges and different you know, questions in different places. And so bringing that into you know, everything from how the company is built to product development to um, interaction is, I think, um, it makes, makes products and companies stronger. I want to add on something that Amy was saying as well, which is this is an experience that we have in Fresno. We've got a top 25 research university Mm -hmm. at Fresno State. Um, We have a long history of investment, but it's in the agricultural sector in terms of agricultural technology. Um, We also have some of the leading um, thinkers and doers on things like water and Mm -hmm. other big heavy industry infrastructural development. Um, what, we, what we are just starting to get now is a strong convening force. We're, we now, in between the university and the city and county and the community foundation, these kind of three you know, public slash private sector pillars of the community, there's more of an understanding of we've got to just get people talking to each other because we do have co-working spaces and no one knows what anybody's working on because it's very siloed. It's generally in an industry that's not well understood and well well known in the San Francisco consumer tech and enterprise tech space, but it is not just tangentially related. In many cases, it's improving products that have, or building new products that have applications beyond the the their primary um, goal in in their primary industries. So, part of this is you just in in communities like ours, which are you know to be fair, third or fourth tier in terms of size, in terms of you know, visibility, um, how you start growing up, you know, get, get promoted through the, through the divisions to, you know, to borrow a soccer analogy, um, is, all about having that central unifying force, um, for, for communities to, to have and plug into and, and do idea share. San Francisco and Silicon Valley have had that since the Fairchild Semiconductor days by virtue of the, the venture firms, right? And, you know, now that we're in the next generation, it's like, come to San Francisco because we know a lot of other people that are doing what you're doing and we can help you, you know, right here and you run into them at the coffee shop and whatever. You got to do more of that in these communities while you also have to build in geographic diversity.
2: But I think what you're saying is that place has not yet become irrelevant. And Correct. with the sort of software revolution, everyone thought, oh, you can just code something in your basement. And we can all live wherever. And, and Upwork, in some ways, is founded on that principle. But it turns out for the next wave of technologies, whether in agriculture or hardware or even cybersecurity, defense, mobility, place actually does really matter when you're physically making stuff. And more and more, we're going to be physically making stuff as a country.
0: Well, on this theme, right? So there's sort of three dimensions in our discussion. One is a city that's too expensive. What do you do about it? How do you fix it? What other cities have that problem? And maybe another theme is what are the next up cities, the next great whatever, and maybe there's 10 of them or 20 of them. And then maybe a third theme is the celestial land he lives in of everything, everywhere, all the time, faces, places, computers, and and all that. And on that first topic, and I want to inspect a little bit more with you, if you don't mind, uh, Claire, how would you fix a city that's working too well like, San Francisco, if it's expensive, it's because people want to pay a lot to be there. I think in New York and parts of in parts of New York City, the same situation. And actually, at the cores of many of the best cities in the world, things have gotten crazy. They are working really well. 30 years ago, things were awful, and now things are amazing. People have figured out, you know, a hundred years ago, they figured out, like, sanitation and disease, yeah. and probably 30 years ago, crime and some other problems got solved, and there's a little bit more mass transit, and traffic's not so terrible in a city like New York or London, because yeah. you just take the metro and all yeah. that. So they, they must be working well. If the rich people are voting with their dollars, like, some Something's attractive. Yeah, it's a luxury if, product, right?
1: If the rich people are voting with their dollars and then those votes actually translate into the way they vote politically, that's where you have the challenge in San Francisco. San Francisco will not build up.
2: They'll what say is up? build with, up yeah.
1: somewhere else. Wow. Oh, it's a beautiful city. Go to San Francisco. It's beautiful. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see the hills. Mm-hmm. I live in Noe Valley. It's super quaint. There's actually a Economist article about Noe Valley, the neighborhood I live <coughs> in, that says... This should not exist. The suburban paradise that's only four stories tall should not exist in one of the most expensive coastal cities in the world. It just should not exist. Um, And so until the will of the electorate supports growing urban density and growing vertically from a real estate perspective, it becomes very hard to change San Francisco. I think there's a confluence of uh, a lot of wealth being created progressive policies that don't quite know what to do from a real estate perspective and an income equality perspective it's very very complicated and if i had that answer i should be mayor of san well, francisco it sounds like you do it's
0: build more taller stuff yeah yeah like, but like, like not in noe
1: valley cuz it's so cute right like th- that's the hard part is i'm not saying that's my point of view i that's one of what my favorite cities people... in the world is hong kong like i think build vertical i think san francisco should look like hong kong but as somebody with a toddler and another one on the way, and who wants to push, you know, her little tricycle down the street, you don't want to do that surrounded by, you know, forty-story buildings. And so what it's, it's that con- internal conflict versus your progressive policies. Well, I think
2: civil institutions matter a lot, yeah. right? Miami has built up, but it's mm-hmm. the most unequal city in America. It has the highest Gini coefficient, right? And that's because a lot of very wealthy people move to Miami to park their money. And then there are a lot of people who've lived there for generations or who come in as immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, whatever, who do not have the same level of access. And as a result, you have a community where there's not a lot of shared identity. And so there's tremendous inequality in institutions that have not been invested in. But then if you look at a place like Minneapolis, which has a huge groundswell, it's a highly educated population, um, but intermixed with families that have been there for, for generations as well, who, you know, all kind of share Kind of broadly, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are really strong institutions in Minneapolis, St. Paul. There's a shared sense of identity as someone who's from that place, and um, as a result, they haven't had skyrocketing rents. It's one of the most Sort of broadly shared prosperity, prosperous areas in our country that has a lot of these same experiences of talented people moving in, companies being built up, but have done it in a very different way.
0: And the think- topic of income inequality, one of the great topics yeah. of our age, and one of the problems that we mo- must all address. Very interestingly, you you can sort of do things in cities while you wait for the the world or for the country nationally to to to, to take some kind of action. What do you think? Is there? I mean, what if you're the policymaker? What's the move? Well, uh, I mean. I, Honestly, I think what you're saying about Minneapolis is true of San Francisco. The
3: problem is that the institutions and the political will are what she's talking about. That's where they I mean, This has been going on since Dianne Feinstein was mayor of San Francisco in the late 1970s in that she instituted this policy of not Manhattanizing downtown San Francisco. And then when the developers got wind of that, they all bought up waterfront property and then started sponsoring ballot initiative after ballot initiative to kill zoning at a local level along the water, which just didn't allow for any building. You couple that with ordinary citizens of San Francisco who have owned homes, whether in the Sunset or in the Marina District, or even in the southern part of the city, and you know have owned them for generations and passed them down. That's their lottery ticket, and they can only cash it in once. So until there becomes a little bit of shift in the balance of the fact that there is very little actual accessible property on the market um, combined with again this idea of we don't do that in San Francisco until both of those things change Nothing is gonna, gonna get solved in this way.
2: But I would argue that San Franciscans have less of a California identity and are less place based in the way that they think about themselves and if you look at philanthropy for instance, the vast majority of philanthropy in this country is local people are giving to local religious institutions, local United Way, etc. San Francisco is really one of the only places in the country where people are more likely to send a dollar. Overseas than anywhere else, right? And so the places where people are investing speaks a lot to what they actually identify with and care about, and I think that that is really quite telling.
0: This is a mall. I'm at South by Southwest, and I moderated a panel on cities. I thought I'd share it with you. Here we go.
1: Yeah, and I want to go back to something Michael said because I'm absolutely not the San Francisco apologist. <laughs> on the like, trust me, I'm 100 percent not, and and one of the reasons is as somebody as an executive who wants to hire talent, I don't want to only be able to hire people that have the perspective of being privileged enough, quite frankly, to live in san francisco and even more than that to have a junior career in san francisco like somebody has to be floating you to have a junior kind of entry level career in san francisco or you've just graduated from stanford with a cs degree like that is the thing but if you're in sales development if you're in customer success if you're even in product management at not at one of the kind of like fang companies Mm -hmm. then you really somebody's like there you've got some yeah. some cushion there and so uh you know to what mike said is i want the my team to reflect the diversity of our customer base and our customers customers and our customers customers live all over the world in different um different standards of living different costs of living uh they have different perspectives their parents their older people their younger people I cannot hire that diversity of talent simply because of the constraints of who can and can't live in San Francisco. And so from a product perspective, I think it really hurts innovative product development to have that limitation. Now, that also being said, I think secondary, let's call them secondary markets or our technology companies that move into to cities like Austin kind of get a pass because they say, oh, we're moving and we're investing in Austin, we're bringing 4,000 jobs, we're bringing 3,000 jobs, we're bringing 8,000 jobs, but those are sales and operations jobs, they're not innovation jobs. And so what I would like to see is not only companies moving some of their workforce out of San Francisco, but actually moving some of their innovation out of San Francisco, and I'm not seeing that happen at as high of a level as you would think.
3: Well, I am seeing it happen, and you can find it on (laughs) upwork.com. Uh, but it, and I think that's a critical point too. Bringing more of your innovation within the company from outside your bubble is is super important, and I, and I think that's um, absolutely the, the fact of the matter.
2: Well, you hit on this earlier with you know the fact that Silicon Valley came from you know actual like. Silicon Silicon. Yeah. Um And Stanford remains one of the only institutions that's done an incredibly good job of technology transfer. So we have amazing, amazing research institutions all over the country, publicly funded and privately, but very, very few of them actually get their technology out and commercialize it. And Stanford, maybe MIT, but like, Ohio State has great stuff going on. Michigan has great stuff going on. The
3: University of Texas at Austin.
2: Has great stuff, right? But, but these technology transfer offices have really failed. And I do think that you know getting innovation out to market is something that the Bay Area knows how to do and should frankly be teaching these other
0: businesses. So let's talk on the theme of uh what other places are working or are the rivals, you know? If, uh, if these guys are screwing up in, in San Francisco, then where are people going? And we, we spoke about a lot of cities. I think we, only for one second did we say New York, which is now the, the second biggest venture market in, in, in America. And it wasn't always. I mean, New York was like somewhere in the, in the middle, middle uh, like five, six, something like that, not so long ago. Uh, It's it's a city that's dominated by a few big industries from time to time, but actually all industries in some way, like not a lot of manufacturing, but a lot of the different types of large corporates are all there. And in the early days of, you know, internet and, and before that computing, New York wasn't seen as a hub for these things. Lately, it is. And perhaps some of the themes that have been making New York a bit more successful this last decade are themes that we have been touching on here. There was a very uh, principled mayor who I wish would run for, for president that um, <clears throat> had a strategy to just take advantage of the things that New York had. And I wonder if you guys feel that New York is too expensive and too snobby and full of rich people and la la la, and it's, and it's destined for, for difficulty, or it has some qualities that are different from what we've been complaining about in the San Francisco case. I mean, certainly there's taller buildings in New York. That is true. Would you care to opine? I mean, I live in
2: Brooklyn. You know that. Oh, uh, you do. <laughs> speak to me. And my rent is insane. So, in New York, <coughs> residential. Actually, more expensive than San Francisco. It's just a lot bigger, so there are more options and the transit.
0: Is There's better. more options, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can ride the, the train a bit more, and you can pay a lot less, and maybe it's not cool. your favorite neighborhood. Yeah. But
2: Endeavor did a really interesting study of the New York ecosystem a few years ago, and really what it says is you needed to have a couple of key companies that did really well, got big enough, and then spun out other people who different companies, and then you know the the initial company invested in the next one, and that's how you build an ecosystem, is in these kind of rings. And it takes decades. So New York was working on it for 40 years before it became an overnight sensation five years ago. But it was really about creating a tech community that was interested in reciprocity, was supportive of people spinning out. And culturally, that's something that San Francisco and the Bay Area has done really well for a long time. It's like understanding that people leave and you wanna be a part of their success after they leave. New York was finally able to embrace that. In some of the Midwestern cities where I work, that's not always culturally the case. If you leave it's some kind of betrayal and people spend, you know, thirty five years at PNG and retire with a watch, that's still an expectation in some of these places. And so culturally you have to be comfortable with transience and mobility and as a society we've actually become far less mobile in the last 20 years. Um, more people live within 20 miles of their mother. I was really surprised
0: by that. Yes. Do you know more about that? I mean I live very near my mother but I <laughs> and I heard that for a thousand years that's been true but it's more?
2: Well I think after the war, right? World War was a long mm. time ago um, and you know we had generations of westward expansion and so Americans were naturally moving and then we've become pretty settled in place and so young people will go off and get an education but they're far more likely to boomerang
0: once they
3: have children. Case study. Um, Did you move home? Like, no, I didn't move home. I, I actually grew up in Boston, so I'm very lost.
0: Yeah, you're a very strange
3: I'm person. Um, I'm, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Is, your, are your, is your wife's family? Yeah, my wife's left? whole family is yeah. down there.
0: My brother-in-law and oh, sister well, right. well, state grads. Is, yeah.
3: They stayed. yeah.
0: So on uh, one theme that you mentioned here on the alumni of great companies and the founders themselves that have had seen, seen big exits, that's absolutely the case in New York. It is so vivid. It's so tangible. There's a handful of people that everybody knows, and that they all did amazing things from DoubleClick uh, uh, through the last generation of big companies, and now there's a bunch of really big privates that at some point something's going to happen, you know, like the, the Warby Parker kind of companies that have all been floating around for a while. Their alumni will start new companies. And, and other, have
2: a way right. yeah, a right. And that area. whole generation yeah. is
0: rolling. Yeah, and I mean, it, this was the innovation theme. It's where are founders? Yeah. And in some of these other cities, where there might be tons of great scientists or cool universities or low cost of living or whatever, if you don't have founders, that tribe of people that know how to work in the early stage, then you don't have anything because well, but, you but always. New York have also a, hacked that system because
3: New York has been the center of design art, media, fashion, real estate, finance, and I can probably go on for another five or six minutes. Assume, please? They have been the center of the universe for all of the, or at least in their own minds. See, I am still from Boston, Capital, of the, world, Capital uh, of the world. Capital of the world kind socks, of thing. Sock, yeah. But what happened 10, 15 years ago is that technology started invading all of these spaces. So now you have people whose core competencies are in a vast array of different industrial sectors saying like, oh, and now we're going to add technology to this. That makes New York a tech center. It's the same story that you see other places. My favorite story along these lines is Nashville, Tennessee. Um, when I, in a previous life, uh, was working, We're a country singer, was a country singer. You know, yeah, uh, you know, I wrote a lot of songs about my pickup truck at the peach packing plant in Fresno. No, um, uh, Nashville has followed exactly this model, right? The Entrepreneur Center at um, uh, Vanderbilt has a guy named Michael Burcham, they also have launched Tennessee, these, these sort of pillars of the community again all started working together and they brought in some companies I was part of their economic development strategy but they also said, teach these kids to be founders and, and teach them leadership and entrepreneurial skills and make it okay to do that in the environment, first at Vanderbilt and then out in the community. Some of them rose, some of them fell but they all tried again. And then that breeds a culture of this. So they're able to, to do that faster. But New York was able to do it
0: in less than a generation because of its prior history with, across industries, I think, as well. I think Mike Bloomberg uh, likes to say that he's – well, he doesn't say. People say about him usually, and then he smiles that he's the most famous startup founder in, from New York. Mm-hmm. And that was from a generation that you wouldn't have thought of Bloomberg as like a – what we call startups now but yeah it was like him in a taxi with like a computer and he goes to the client and does the deal and there's some it was a tech company company and it's just a colossal it seems it's doing well yeah yeah it is a very promising business but so if New York um, has made a transformation that makes it really competitive uh, with with San Francisco, which in the long run doesn't have as much going for it, perhaps, as a giant city like New York. Mm-hmm. What do you think about like in LA or like what's before we get to the tier of cities that perhaps are the next group? Because I don't think that Austin is in the next group, is it? Uh, no. Yeah. Well, what do you Sorry, think's the Austin. next group? Where do people? Well, Austin has a role to play, and I want to investigate a little bit more. But um, what are the other cities where things are happening like yeah, LA's? Yeah. Atlanta.
2: Yeah, yeah I hear a lot you're though. talking about diversity as well. Like Atlanta has become the hub of really Black tech in America, which is is growing faster than a lot of other segments. Like mm-hmm. Black women are more likely to found a company. Than any, almost any other human at this point, they're, they're the fastest growing group of I did not
0: entrepreneurs. Know. What is it? I've never heard the expression used. Black tech is the stuff different, or the founders are black. The founders
2: are black. I see. And there's a huge community of. I mean, that's because obviously you have amazing HBCUs and other educational institutions. You have a, a history and a legacy of black culture there, and black industry in Atlanta. And now it's becoming a hub for technology. It, it,
3: it's parallel to the New York experience as
2: well, right? Like you have Delta, you have all sorts of companies there. Hmm.
3: Yeah. You were gonna say no. I know I'm saying it's it's parallel to the New York experience in a lot of ways because Atlanta has a very similar history, very hyper-targeted at the African American community and experience growing out of the HBCUs and all the things that you just listed off. So they they're following that New York playbook in a lot of ways, and it's also a you know, apart from the traffic, a fairly livable place. Um, and 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 that's exciting. I mean the one that comes to mind for me are places like Denver. Um, and, and you before know, austin other, you're going to do before go denver austin, you, know, you know denver can you get weed in austin you can in denver you can that's yes. attractive yeah. to, that's attractive <laughs> to, <laughs> to mid 30s startup founders with I children <laughs> no, I mean, like, you can, but it's a lot easier. I believe Willie
1: Nelson would say you could get weed in Austin.
3: You, we, cannot lead, we, no, you cannot we'll lead you with weed your weed pitch for the city that you should start your company. No, but, like, it's a livable place. It's a, it's Denver's a great place to raise kids, so when you are mid-30s and want to still be, you know, pushing and starting companies and things like that, like, mm-hmm. it's approachable from a housing perspective. There's great schools. You know, again, standard of living is very high. We've got... Um, we had some uh, folks that work remotely
0: through platform that are based in Denver, and they all chose it. They all wanted to be like, you know. Mike, we didn't talk about this yesterday, but I'm curious, because I think on the demand and the supply side of your lovely platform, which I advocate daily and I use daily, I've got all these alerts in my tone. I, I think Upwork's amazing. I wonder if in the demand side, the 100,000 whatever companies mm-hmm. that use your thing, do they light up a map that shows you where economic activity is originating from in the sense of her, like, people who want the innovation are hiring supply-side folks in other places? So we did a, a study of the platform in 2016
3: with Paul Lawyer at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and uh, one of the things that he found is that 96% of transactions on the Upwork platform happen between a buyer and a seller, so a client and a freelancer, um, 50 miles apart or more, and it roughs out to about 1,000 miles in the U.S., and what it does is create a river of capital from Silicon Valley and New York and London and Hong Kong and you know, other major world financial centers of economic vitality into generally middle-class, middle-income communities, uh, generally but not exclusively surrounded by a research university. So, again, people are choosing to now, through the use of technology, want to stay in the place where they went to school, generally, or where their family is, being 20 miles or less from your mom, that kind of stuff and uh they're realizing that you can live in denver or fresno or new york even but have a job in silicon valley because it's just it's it's much more seamless and now we're unlocking that capital and when i go back and talk to the the folks in fresno who are like well high speed rails coming so we got to be ready to be a bedroom community for silicon valley soon because that train's going to start soon and i love them for their optimism but before that it's you know if you're a developer come, or, or a CS kid coming out of Fresno State, you can have a job in Silicon Valley and live here now and live in Fresno now. And you can get that job this afternoon. And by the way, you can get two or three of them if you so choose and scale up and down as you need to. So.
1: I do want to, you know, caveat that with you can have a job, but somebody that has in, you know, this is. As somebody who is ambitious and wants to climb the ranks and has an executive job, it becomes harder and harder to lead teams and be a company leader when you're not in HQ. And so that was the personal choice that I had to make. I had my, my company was acquired. I could have stayed in Austin. That was they had no they pushed me zero percent to move to Silicon Valley. But I wanted to run the product team. Like I wanted to be SVP of product. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't going to happen if I stayed in Austin, even if I did phenomenal work, even if I um, built a bigger team here, it just was not going to happen. And so one of the things that, you know, I recommend people think about when they think about, well, I could have my job here, I could have my job there. It's, you can have this job, but five jobs down the line, where are you going to be? And that's where the proximity to innovation really matters. And so that's why I wanna see companies pushing, not just innovation hubs, um, functional hubs like product and engineering, out of their headquarters, but also executives out of their headquarters until they have, until these companies have the intestinal fortitude to say my CMO can live in Cleveland. Intestinal my CTO, fortitude. My CTO can live if, in If ER. they offered
0: you the same gig, Claire, and they said you could just do it in Austin, do you think it'd be fine?
1: What about the next job?
0: So it wouldn't be fine, even if they had the fortitude and they're like, just do it, you'd no. be the SVP, be over here, hire your own team, but all the people who work for you are half of them are in SA. I
1: think functionally it would be fine. I think I would do an excellent job. We have product managers in uh, San Francisco, Austin, and New York now. We're a distributed product team. Mm-hmm. We have engineers across the entire United States. We haven't um, expanded our engineers internationally because time zone collaboration becomes really hard in engineering. I think I would do a fine job, but I think oh, you'd be amazing. Don't undersell yourself. Excellent. But personally, from a career perspective, um, and I was telling you this, there are five VP of product jobs that come up in Austin every year. One of them is maybe interesting to me, and and I have a husband who's a VP of marketing, and there are five VP of marketing jobs that come up in Austin every year, and maybe one of them is interesting. And so, do you want to bet your long-term livelihood? on a a smaller set of optionality. And so I think that's the trade-off people are making when they go into Silicon Valley, either from a career or from a startup uh, financing perspective is it's optionality, it's not quality of life.
2: But I would argue on the flip side, if you're a young person, your ability to advance quite quickly in a less saturated market is perhaps a lot higher. And that's what we've seen with our fellows who are COOs or running businesses number two. (laughs) <laughs> um, and you get that access in a way that you might not in a more crowded market. And I would argue that Austin is actually fairly crowded compared to most of the places that we're working. Yeah. And when we ask our fellows you know, what they care about, cost of living is something, having friends, having your favorite neighborhood bar, all of those things are somewhat relevant, but it's about opportunity. And they are thinking two or three yeah. jobs ahead. And so that is incumbent upon any ecosystem builder to think about those options down the line. But they also care a lot about the personal things that we've been talking about. Like if your family is close mm-hmm. by, if you marry someone local, I've met so many startup founders in New Orleans or Cleveland who say well I married a girl from here and then when we have kids it was time to live here or maybe it's I married a man more often it's the other way around unfortunately, Um, but that is the calculus that individual families are making.
1: And I'll say I benefited from exactly that dynamic. I had my early career in Austin. I was able to accelerate really quickly. And then when I decided to start a company, I knew every CEO in Austin and they were friendly to me. And so it was very easy for me to get into Techstars Austin because every single one of the mentors and the people running that program knew me. And then it was very easy to at least raise from angels in Austin, even though we didn't do a significant amount out of Texas because I had reputation here in a much smaller market. It would have been much more difficult, particularly as a female founder to go into Silicon Valley and raise the same round we did in, I think we did it in 11 weeks. And so I absolutely benefited from that, but what that got me to was a point in my career where I said, well, to take the next step, I know I need to geographically move, but that meant I made significant sacrifices um from well, a, and lower on the, perspective. And
3: on the point of sacrifices, I'd love to see an economic study done of what you have to give up to do that in terms of like your your actual yearly revenue mm-hmm. for your earning. You're like Your earning potential is much higher in Silicon Valley, but how much of that is going to just general cost of living? The taxes. Oh no 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 no.
1: Taxes. <laughs> Texas way, our have taxes are way tax. too low in
3: California. Oh I said that into one microphone. <laughs> uh, we have to fix a whole lot about, about how we tax in California. Uh, I'll, I'll put it that way. But uh, you know, I think there are a lot of trade-offs with that, but you do see the brass ring of this the, the, the long-term health and success and optionality of your career in Silicon Valley more than other places. I would contend that it's not as much of a jump anymore as it was, say, 5, 10, 15 years ago, and... It is a your your ratio there of how much your potential earning versus how much you have to outlay
0: is also um, much closer than it was five to On this one certainly the math is available for those who don't want to hear from interested parties. I as my as as your moderator, I'm going to perform my duties to the audience as well, and those of you who have questions, you might start preparing them, and I see an eager person here. Would you like to ask? Hi, so
4: I'm a mom of four, living, working, uh, founding my company in San ah. uh, Francisco. I live and work in the heart of the city. My kids go to school in the heart of the city. My agency is in downtown San Francisco. Amazing! Uh, I built it in 20, uh, 2005 and still going strong. Obviously, our, our our margin profitability is lower than I'd like it because of the high cost of real estate. Uh-huh. However, um, we've been able to...
0: Are you looking for a new office?
4: i <laughs> uh-huh? <laughs> so looking for a new office. So that's what I was gonna talk to you about. So there's three topics that I'd um, really like to talk, make sure that they get addressed. Number one is, do you think employers have a responsibility to pay their talent enough salary to match the local housing? Yes. That's number yes. one. There's a big debate in the Bay Area about this, so I thought this might interest people. Uh, so if I'm trying to, you know, you're supposed to be working for me and you're such a talented person that I should be paying you enough that you don't have, you don't have to have to this topic. Yeah. Number two, does it really matter where we work from anymore? Because we're, uh, I, I've been working for about 120 big brands and I'm finding that the, more and more the decentralization of the business model is becoming a mainstream thing. So we're in a gig economy, and I personally will go after talent anywhere in the world if they are the missing link for my agency. And I will hire teams all over the world, either in any capacity, full-time, part time on a project-by-project basis. And the clients I work for don't really seem to care where I'm based. So that leads me to the last issue is- Hang on a second, you have three <laughs> questions. <Okay. laughs> well, the first answer was yes,
0: the second answer was no, it was third uh-huh. one. So,
4: so the gig economy, we Recorded, where your teams are based, that would
0: be my like the second... Krista, thank you. These are all great questions. We're going to tackle them in the second hour of this panel, which starts at 12 o'clock. No, we'll, we'll try them right now. We'll try them right now. Go for it.
2: So I think, yes, you, you should be paying your people a living wage. Absolutely. Um, and that is why than half of my team is distributed and is based in places like Detroit and Cleveland, because I can afford to pay them there. I would... And half of my team, a little bit less than half of my team, is in New York, where I do have to pay them more, and, and that is an adjustment that we make. But as a startup founder, in my case, running a nonprofit that thinks it's a startup, um, I'm making a calculus about how the quality and those sort of trade-offs if I'm paying someone you know, 50% more to live in a city where, frankly, it doesn't matter that they live there, I'm not going to do that. And so for what we do, Having a distributed team is quite effective. We have folks in more than 11 different cities, but it does mean that you need to bring people together more and you need to be really religious about it, whether it's your Slack or your Skype calls or mm-hmm. Zoom. But I think that distributed teams can be highly effective. You just have to be really intentional about like
0: so Amy you know that he's got a long canned speech on exactly this topic yes. and so we no, but won't, you just made it for we me. won't ask him we'll ask Claire to address maybe the second and third the second questions. question yes. so
1: do so I agree yes we should be paying people living wages mm-hmm. uh, in, in and I was on, I'm on a mom's mom's in tech Facebook group and there was actually this woman that said Does a company, like, I don't want to make this company I'm negotiating my salary with care how much it costs for me to live in the city? And I was like, yes, you do. That's their responsibility, 100%. Um, But do you have to be located? Does it matter? I think the debate is saying it sometimes does matter. Um, Now, that being said, I just distributed my first PMs into non-HQ locations. So I put one in Austin and one in New York. We are still figuring out how to make that work, how to make whiteboards are not really effective for people that work remotely. We do a lot of like scrum stuff on the wall, not effective for people that work remotely. Uh, You can't do drive-bys, you can't do like quick little huddles and stand-ups. It is hard to cross collaborate. And then I will say time zones are a real thing and so when software companies compete on velocity of development getting new features to market if you're working internationally you tend to have an 8 to 12 hour cycle on things that would take 15 minutes if you were co-located and so i think there are the like natural constraints of time and space that make it more challenging but i think there is uh technology that makes it easier i also think there's just changes in ways that your culture works and collaborates that can also make it easier and then we measure it so we have what we call a New York Promoter Score and an Austin Promoter Score—it's how many people in those offices would recommend somebody in their function works out of that office. Mm-hmm. And I'm tracking—I'm trying to track to move my New York Promoter Score up because I've just moved my PM there. I want to make sure that he would recommend other PMs work out of the office. And he's not quite there yet. He's not a promoter. He's a neutral right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's something you can measure and move, but it's not easy.
0: Krista, look what you did. Look behind you there. Like all these people with all these questions. If you don't mind, I'd like to take one more. If—if if, if it's okay. Okay, hey, I'd like to move on to the next person. Oh, okay. Just given how many people are writing thank you so much.
5: Um, hi, thank you so much for this panel. Uh, it's really interesting. One thing um, I wanted to talk about is, I think anything else that you brought up Atlanta, Georgia, as mm-hmm. one of the next star ecosystems. Um, I was actually, and you called it kind of like the diversity mm-hmm. of tech. I was actually born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and when I go to these tech spaces, I make work at a foundation focused on tech diversity. And these conferences, it's a city that's majority black and white, um, at least for um, the next census. But when I go to these tech spaces, that's not what I see. Mm -hmm. And so, um, as we see, and I've also seen a huge influx in infrastructure, which is amazing, but also a lot of displacement. Um, Right now, I currently work in Oakland, California, where we focus on tech diversity, bringing a lot of that wealth from Silicon Valley to Oakland. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what we see is, again, um, a lot of displacement and not local jobs created, but actually just bringing people across the bay and saying, oh, now Oakland's like a safe, cool place Mm -hmm. for people in San Francisco to live. Hey,
1: Rockridge.
5: (laughs) Rockridge. (laughs) Rockridge is a little maybe San Francisco for sure. So I'm curious what your opinion is as we talk about different tech ecosystems and growing tech ecosystems. How do we ensure that people who are currently living there have an opportunity to participate um, and what are your comments?
0: Yeah, this is great. This is great. And it's close to home for me. It's four blocks from where I live. I was very annoyed. I was actually eager to have these folks show up. And I'm curious if, if other folks. This is your question making it work for the community. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Isn't that what you do all day?
2: It's, it's something we Part try, of your day. Right. And so with Venture for America, we try to be really intentional about having our fellows, most of whom are not from the place where they're going to be working, understand that these are cities that have been around for you know hundreds of years and, and have these rich histories, and also very complicated histories of things like redlining and segregation that are, that are very much affecting today's environment. Um, and yeah, I walk into the same spaces and they're not nearly as inclusive as the communities around them, and I think it's a real challenge. Um, one of the, there's sort of two things that I like to think about. One, obviously, is making sure that. There are educational programs, so there are a lot of coding boot camps that I see, and some are far more effective than others. And actually, getting local talent into those the places where they need to be, I'd be happy to talk to you about my feelings about different ones later. Um, but also thinking about the broader ecosystem, right? And One of the things that we saw with the New Geography of Jobs, which is one of the books that we rely on a lot, is that when a tech company hires someone in a geography, that leads to typically about five new jobs in the surrounding community. Two of those are high-skilled jobs, they're lawyers, they're accountants, they're teachers, but three of those are lower-skilled jobs in the non-tradable sector. They're baristas and childcare providers, etc. and those are things where you can only do them in a specific place. And so, you know, I I think that we have to think a little bit more broadly about the kinds of jobs and then making sure that there are jobs at sort of every level of the value chain for people who are in a specific place to be able to continue to be in that place. And when I think about a place like Detroit or Baltimore, which are suffering population loss you know, filling those places in and growing the tax base is actually quite important. And so it's not gentrification like what a lot of people are decrying in Brooklyn or in Oakland. It's really something different that needs to be managed effectively in order to bring about shared prosperity because you actually do need new people going to those places.